Good afternoon, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host today, Gil Halstead. Our guest today is Nick Vanderpie, author of the book Water Protectors, The Help Campaign to Save the Pinocchies, published by Strong Dog Press in July of 2022. And the HELP in the title is an acronym that stands for the Harvest Educational Learning Project. It's a book that details how a coalition of tribal citizens, environmentalists, and neighbors occupied the Pinocchio Hills in northern Wisconsin to stop a contested iron mining operation. And let me just say a little bit about Nick before we start. This is his first book. Uh, he's been a fishing guide for a long time, for, I don't know, 30, 40 years up north. Um, he was mostly out of Eagle River for that time. He now lives in Mellon, Wisconsin. And uh, he, besides being a fishing guide, uh, for many years he was also, and I think to a certain extent still is, a radio journalist uh, freelance and full disclosure I have worked with Nick on and off through uh, in the 90s mainly in covering the mine conflicts the mining conflicts up in northern Wisconsin first around Crandon and then later around the Pinocchio's very near where, where Nick lives now in Mellon so Nick has been a an indigenous uh, activist uh, advocate for many years in working on these campaigns. And that's really what this book is about. Again, it's called Water Protectors, the Help Campaign to Save the Pinocchies. The Pinocchies is a range of mountains, or maybe we call them hills here in Wisconsin, <laughs> compared to other parts of the country, where there were plans to... Uh, to dig an iron mine. So let's start talking about the book. Nick, thanks so much for taking the time to talk about this and for spending all the time it took to write this book. It includes so much. And so I think to start with, just to ask you, um, what made you decide to actually write the book about this campaign? When I talked to an elder from Bad River, I asked him about the meaning of the word Pinocchio. And he said to me, it means bin, it, it breaks down to bin aki, clean, pure, beautiful Mother Earth. And as you mentioned, I'm a fisherman. I was a guide, and I'm still a guide. And there's some very wonderful trout fishing up in the Pinocchio Hills. And when this came about, this mine had been talked about for years. And finally, there was some movement from a group called GTAC and Klein Coal, who was a big coal magnate from West Virginia. And the LCO tribe wanted more information about it. And Rusty Barber was the, was the vice uh, chairman at the time. And he went to Jerry Petrowski, who was a senator from northern Wisconsin, and asked Jerry for the lowdown. And let's just say Jerry was less than forthcoming. So Rusty put his best man on the deal... Uh, Paul Demain, which we've both we've both worked with. Yeah, I think Paul is well known to some, many Wart listeners I, I, as well. Paul Demain, tell us about who he is, though. Paul is a, an Oneida man uh, who was uh, trained by Pipe Mustache, uh, an activist, uh, an editor, who ran News from Indian Country for many years, and he's been involved in lots of activism. 
I worked for Paul for, for several years. And Paul um, was uh, organizing down in Madison, and he met a fella uh, named Steve Feeney, who happened to be an F-16 mechanic out at Truax. And Paul was looking for a place to set up a occupation. This would be like an early uh, Standing Rock. So Paul came up north with some colleagues and some comrades and uh, met Steve Feeney. And Feeney was a little bit apprehensive about these long hairs that were showing up. But uh, Feeney had been recently, you know, involved with an offer from the company, and the company really wasn't going to pay him anything for his land. So he said, there's a place here at the end of the road where you can camp. And that uh, played into our needs because the elders from LCO wanted to have a big uh, activist gathering at Copper Falls Park, which is just a little bit north of this territory. And Paul said, well, we're going to build a camp. So uh, there was still snow on the ground. They started shoveling. They put up a big giant wall tent, put up a place for a central fire, and then ultimately built uh, a village back in the woods. And, you know, one thing about Indian resistance is occupation is a tried and true strategy, as was Wounded Knee, as was Standing Rock, and as uh, our camp became. By the end of our occupation there, over 7,000 people had gone through this camp with a lot of Madison support. And the idea was to put ourselves on the ground and to integrate our heads and our hearts into listening to the land. There was a real long Ojibwe word, which is about half a page long, that (laughs) identifies that. But I can tell you that's what it meant in English. And I I was recruited. I'd been active as a treaty warrior. During the spearfishing? During the spearfishing, I, I pretty much became a pariah in Eagle River. I lost my guiding business. I ended up uh, cutting firewood and, and roofing houses, which is a, a tough job. But eventually, I became a public radio reporter, but retained my activist uh, credentials. So we got set up out in the Pinocchies during the summer. Uh, things, this was the summer of 2013? 2013. The things got really interesting when some... Some anarchist activists uh, ran their own blockade up on the Pinocchio Hills, and there were some bad words, and somebody wrestled a cell phone away from an engineer, and uh, this group was busted by the cops, and the leader of the group was a, a young woman named Crow, who was charged with uh, felony assault and was up for 15 years. Uh, Governor Walker weighed in about uh, two weeks later and said that these anarchists should be punished to the full extent of the law. Well, GTAC decided that that was... GTAC was the name of the mining company. the name of the mining company. GTAC decided that they were going to hire some mercenaries from Arizona. Uh, We called them lock and load. I think their real name was Bulletproof. And what did they need them there for? What did the mine... To prevent these kinds... Yeah. The excuse was to prevent these kinds of... uh, we were described as terrorists, you know, because we didn't want to see our water turned into a cesspool, into a toxic dump. So the mercenaries came up there, and one of our poet warriors, his name is Robbie Ganson. He's now in the spirit world. Uh, Robbie uh, went up on a mine site. He uh, fortunately parked his 357 with his wife that day and walked up there, and a mercenary dressed in full camo with an automatic weapon pointed it at him, and he snapped a photo. 
And we could tell in the next few hours that this photo was going to go viral. Ended up with CNN, Washington Post, Voice of America. And the Democrats who were in the middle on this whole thing at the time, who were talking about, quote, responsible mining, all of a sudden they're saying, sounding like John Trudeau. You know, we can't have uh, this kind of third world situation in our backyard. And it so embarrassed the company, they withdrew those mercenaries. But then the fun really began. We had wigwams. We had uh, food production. We, we riced. We, uh, we killed deer. We went ice fishing. We had songs. People fell in love. And we occupied out there and really formed a village. And, and this goes a little bit deeper than the story I'm telling you. One of the reasons I live in the North Woods is because we're winning up there. We stopped a high-level nuclear waste dump in the 80s. We stopped an incinerator. We stopped a acid train going through High Bridge. We stopped uh, uh, a CAFO. And we also ended up stopping GTAC. And it's a combination of indigenous leadership with Euro-Americans following the seventh fire prophecy. And that, that prophecy originated with Eddie Benton during the 80s, during... He's an Ojibwe? An Ojibwe leader. He was a founder of the American Indian Movement and had written a, a very important book called the Mishomas book, the grandfather book. And, and Eddie prophesied that during the time of the seventh fire, the sons and daughters of the settlers, of which I include myself, would begin to hear the spirits in the land, and they would become a new people, also called Ashke Bamadazig, the new people. Mike Wiggins, who's one of the lead defenders of the Pinocchios right now involved in litigation with Enbridge for Line 5, said that our camp, the help camp, was a spiritual and physical manifestation of a new people. So that's where we came from, and, you know, we won. The mining company left. Had the mining company stayed and developed a open pit, thousand foot deep mine, the climate catastrophe flood of 2016, which rained about 15 inches of rain on the North Woods in four hours, would have swept those tailing ponds into the Tyler Forks, which meets up with the Bad River at one of the most popular state parks in Wisconsin called Copper Falls, which many, many people have visited. And that pollution, that toxicity, would have drifted downstream to destroy the wild rice beds in the Bad River ecosystem, which is a, a very incredible water facility, water, uh, water value. And those people at Bad River might indeed be living right now in a FEMA camp up in northern Minnesota. But you know, brother, these, these, these floods keep coming, these 500-year floods keep coming every three or four years. And that's what we're facing, okay? And this book is the story of how this battle was won, basically. Right, right. And, and it's the story of the camp. That's what the book's about, right. the campaign to save the Pinocchis. And in reading through it, as I have, the stories about... You've given a, a basic outline of, of what happened of establishing the camp in 2013 and then uh, gaining the support that you did from both tribal and local residents uh, to, to put this camp together and then to actually survive one of the coldest winters 
in Wisconsin? Gil, it was so cold that when you spilled coffee, it would crack like a pistol shot before it hit the ground. It was cold. And, and my basic outfit was an anorak, a wool anorak, a wool hat, wool pants, mucklucks with cleats, and uh, a lot of wood. We, uh, we burnt a lot of wood out there. But part of our strategy out there, and, and this was kind of my role, I was something of a, of a redneck whisperer. Because, you know, I'm born and bred Wisconsin, you know, and I can talk Packers and I can talk deer hunting and I do all these things. And fishing. And fishing. <laughs> and we befriended a, a logger by the name of Rusty Buck, who uh, at first uh, was very suspicious of us. And he always packed. He always had a handgun. Wherever he went. But, of course, that's more customary up there than it is in Madison. But Rusty uh, had a sauna, and we befriended him. And we had to be some of the cleanest mining protesters in North America because we would take saunas every three or four nights. (laughs) (laughs) And we ate well. We, We processed rice with him. We made maple sugar. We killed deer. And he eventually became a huge ally and it was because of his generosity that we got firewood to survive that very cold winter. That, that literally was the coldest winter of the past century. So where did the wood come from? And the story is in the book for f- folks listening. Uh, the outlines are getting in. I'm going to ask you in, in a moment, Nick, to read some parts in it. Yeah. Uh, but how was he able to provide that wood that, that actually kept uh, the camp warm that winter? Well, most... Most people living in that vicinity use firewood for heat. And he, he donated his next year's winter supply to us, which was already dry. Had we been obligated or gone out to cut green wood, we would have, we would have probably perished up there. So he uh, borrowed uh, one of his colleagues, one of his friends' logging trucks and delivered that wood right to us. And then Bill Hart, who ran a, a print shop in in Ashland, he came out with his John's Red Chainsaw and made all that wood. And every day, uh, we would take our sleds. There was another family living out there, Larry Ackley, who's an enrolled Mole Lake uh, member. He was living there, too. We would, we would heat our lodges with that wood. And then we had water, and we had a special uh, toilet that the tribe delivered, and uh, lots of food, and, um, and then cribbage every night. <laughs> and I, I lost 28 consecutive nights to Larry. So, so. There's a story about Buck um, that uh, I'd like to hear you just read a little from, from the book. On page 37, um, this is Rusty Buck, um, Buck's Bear Ass Sauna. Yeah. Um, so if you could just read the first couple of paragraphs there. This tells a, a particular story about what happened in, in the camp one day. It was starting to get cold at help camp as fall settled in. When the wind blew through the maples, Rusty would say, that's the white wizard of winter coming. I had started to gather dry wood during the summer, but we needed a lot more. Yet no one at camp seemed very focused on wood except for me, so I persuaded Rusty Buck to sell us 10 cores of dry hard rock maple that was sitting in his yard near his home in nearby Iron Belt. On a brisk Early October morning, Rusty, wearing a light quilted jacket, jeans, and a black baseball cap, and I drove out to Terry Peters' house for his logging truck. The key was in the ignition. Rusty worked for Peters, but it's unlikely Peters would have agreed 
to help supply us with winter firewood. So we simply drove off in the rig. As we drove back, there were deer crossing the road everywhere. Rusty backed the rig into his backyard and operated the picker loading up 10 cords. We returned to help camp with our precious cargo and unloaded. Al Jazeera filmed the, the, the delivery. Bill Hart arrived with his John's Red chainsaw and began knocking down the pile. The sale and delivery of the wood from a neighbor who we originally thought might kill us made the 2013-14 winter occupation possible. So there you have it. And at the, uh, the beginning of this, which is actually a, another part of the story that I wanted to ask um, that has to do with, uh, with a bear, actually. Can you tell that story at the top of the page there? Or is that, is that not something that happened at the same time? Well, one, one of the uh, hunters uh, went out and harvested a bear. And I didn't know about it until we were coming back from uh, being up on the hill with Paul Demain and Mike, Mike uh, Fitz, who was a geologist from Northland. He had discovered grunerite up on the ridge. And grunerite causes... Uh, very serious lung disease, and it, a lot of the Masabi Iron Rangers suffer from it. And it's embedded in the soil and in the tree, so it was, a, it was a very timely discovery. Well, we came back, and when I got back to camp, a rusty mouth pointed over towards the shed, you know, like over there. And I walked in the shed, and there was a, there was a bear hanging from its neck. It would have been gutted. And Rusty said... Uh, you know, dress them, which means skin them out. Well, the way that evolved was that bear ended up feeding people as far west as Cody, Wyoming. That bear was distributed as a gift. Bear meat is, is very, very good to eat. And we, we tanned the hide, we kept the claws, we, uh, we made a rug out of it. But the interpretation that rose from that story was that there's a new law enforcement there's a new sheriff in town, and that sheriff would be Makwa, the bear. And that's how we looked at it. And, and you see, all these things were us becoming part of this land. We were retribalizing. And it isn't something that we carried from Europe. It was something we were taught by elders like Joe Rose, like Paul DeMain, and, and some of the younger women like, like Sandy Goki. There's descriptions in the book that almost make it sound uh, like the, there were events that were almost magical that happened during this uh, camp through the winter in, in the Pinocchies there. And you related in different places in the book to much older tribal legends. A woman, a woman by the name of Maureen Barron, she's the... Miner's daughter from Hurley, okay? Maureen, she had a different name back then, but I'll use the name she uses now, Maureen Barron. Her daddy, her daddy used to trap otter, beaver, muskrats on Tyler Forks. And he would walk in there and catch uh, very big, very big brook trout. And she was down on the ice one time following an otter trail going up, and she came to... An incredible sight. It was. It looked like a woman in a long dress with very long braids. 
and it was it was like a ice spike. And we found out from a geologist that only the purest water in North America is capable of producing this ice spike. So she made an offering and came back and began to ask tribal people what this might connect to. And there were several stories from Paul Domaine and from Amron Mello and from uh, some other ladies uh, on the res that there was a lady back in the 1850s when this was being explored by the mining company. Her name was Little Flower Woman. She had lost her, her man in a battle, and she was searching for him. She would take a canoe, and she would paddle up to the Bad River and explore and try to find something, some evidence that where he might have disappeared to. Well, the mining exploration came through about 1858, and they were near either Bad River or, or the other little re- river up there, Tyler Forks, and they saw, they saw a body in the water. And the body had long braids, was wearing leggings, and also had a crucifix on her chest. And it turned out to be a native woman. Well, the mining company didn't bother didn't bother to check on her family, and they they uh, acquired her body and they took it out to a, a Barnum Museum in New York. And about three years later, that that Barnum Museum they put her on display. They taxidermied her. They put that body on display, and about three years later, that that museum burned down. And the way this story evolved was that little flower woman had come back to our camp to protect us and to protect the water there. And, you know, we like to say that sometimes we need a story more than food to stay alive. And that was one of those stories. That was one of those stories. I also found woven into this um, not only stories of the indigenous history, like the one you've just described, and uh, the Mishomas uh, legend of the of the fires. Is it seven fires? Three fires. The three fires, yeah. woven into the story of what happened that winter and the effort to keep the mining company from succeeding in uh, getting the mine permitted. Um, some other magical references to uh, which are not so much uh, Native American or indigenous, but come from. Uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Right. So say a little bit about how you, you thought that there were actually characters from right. the Lord of the Rings that might be helping you out there. There was a place, it was like a, a special stone formation that it looked like it had been left uh, by the glacier. And we all, several of us, had a distinct impression that that was the home of Tom Bombadil. <laughs> Tom, of course, is the only character in the trilogy who's not affected by the ring. And we were hoping to meet his his companion, I think her name was Mayberry, down at the river. We never met her, but we did clearly meet Tom Bombadil. I mean, so there were all these myths that were circling. And, you know, it, this was an anarchist operation. There really wasn't any leadership. People were out there, they would cook, they would tell stories, they would sing, and they brought their particular narrative to the feast. 
You know, we had people from uh, from Spain show up who had, you know, and we told them at the time we are living in a neo-fascist state, which we were. All the protections that we had worked for in the 80s and 90s to protect the water, the mining moratorium, had been repealed by toxic Tom Tiffany and his crowd. And, and we were there to set, set up a, a banner that said, uh, you know, keep the water clean. You know, we're, this, is the, this is the home of Bob LaFollette and Gaylord Nelson and Warren P. Knowles and Walter Brissett. And we're obligated to protect this water, which is going to clearly become in the oil of the 21st century. And the mining company's approach, I want to just read a, a couple of paragraphs here and then ask you a little bit more about putting the book together. And we're talking with Nick Vanderpai, the author of uh, the book that's the topic of a discussion for this week on BookBeat. That is uh, called Water Protectors, the Help Campaign to Save the Pinocchies. So you have on page 56 here, and I'm just going to read it, um, uh, a section called, uh, headlined, hunting the golden goose. So the mining company, quoting now from the book, the mining company did not hibernate that winter. It continued directing its efforts against us through unrelenting attempts to co-opt the local community. One day, the company president of the mining company, Bill, Bill Williams, announced that our movement was attempting to, quote, kill the golden goose of mining benefits for the community. Williams had been described by the Bad River Tribal Attorney, the Bad River Tribal Attorney, Philomena, Quebec, as having the coldest, deadest eyes, no curiosity, no empathy, no spark of life that she'd ever seen. We responded by organizing a public hunt for the Golden Goose, gathering on Highway 77 north of the mining site. Several of us, Sandy Goki, John Boy, Bertel, Bill Hart, Larry Ackley, and others walked out from camp with a banner to lead the demonstration ceremonially. During the ceremony, Bad River Elder Joe Rose saw whirlwinds of snow dancing near our camp's entrance. He explained this was the Anishinaabe culture hero, Trickster, Wainabuju, half man, half spirit, who was showing up to help us. These kinds of descriptions appear throughout this book, as do some really wonderful illustrations. Could you talk a little about where those came from? Well, the illustrator is named Patrick Rollo. He's um, a Bad River man. Uh, he grew up in a family of eight brothers and a sister. His brother, Mark Anthony Rollo, uh, was the editor of the Circle magazine in, in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. I met him through... Uh, through uh, the Bad River Tribal Chair, Mike Wiggins. And we, we worked together. In fact, we've been, he was living in Wisconsin Dells and I decided the best thing would be for me just to um, kidnap him. <laughs> to, uh, take him back to the woods and live in uh, Mike Wiggins' uh, love shack on the res, which we did. And the advantage to that was, and you can see it on the cover, the cover features uh, Nagig, the otter, who is a, a, a very important uh, being in the pantheon, in both uh, ceremonial practice and, and in the migration story of the Anishinaabe from the great 
salt sea in the east to the place where food grows on water. Well, this particular otter here would literally come up during the night and grunt at the illustrator, Patrick Rollo. And that's what accounts for this all-seeing, knowledgeable beast here. And of course, what else do we have on the cover? We have the wild rice. We have Gichigami, the big water. Uh, we have, uh, you know, and then several line drawings in here, too, of Makwa and Makuns, uh, a bear with her cubs. We have a picture of uh, Manuman, wild rice in a birch bark basket. We've got, uh, we've got a, a North American water turtle on uh, page 25. We've got a picture of uh, Sandy Goki. Uh, we have, a, we have a Wabagons, the little flower woman paddling up Bad River. So this is, uh, this is the people coming together. This is a, you know, a European-American male becoming, uh, be- becoming indigenous uh, and an indigenous artist uh, working together. And it's, it's been a very lovely encounter. Um, we've got some more covers coming um, the art, uh, I, I learned a lot being around a painter about talking with color. Uh, you know, we were talking, you know, earlier about blue. You know, well, this lake is blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. the, the stalks are green. It opened me up to a whole other form of communication, and we remain uh, very close. And so for a lot of your uh, career in terms of writing you were as a radio journalist writing for your voice and gathering the voices of others that were that were then uh communicated to the consumers of the product you were making through their ears uh what was it like to uh to try to put put that down in text that would be received by the consumers through their eyes rather than their ears. You're used to, to writing as a radio journalist, which is writing for the ear. Right, has, right. That, has that been difficult, or what was it like? Well, you know, since we acquired uh, all this social media, uh, I've been writing frequently on Facebook and also on some podcasting. And it was just a natural flow for me to come from my radio writing back into prose, I know one thing in radio, um, I, I really emphasized uh, verbs. Verbs expand, adjectives contract. And I, and I look at some of my prose here, and it, it, it isn't that much different than a lot of my scripts, okay? And you can identify that because you know my work. You know, mm-hmm. We've, we've right. watched and observed and admired each other's work from far. But, he, but here's what happened here. I, I would write both at camp because Flambeau graciously got us some some satellite disks. So we had our computers right out there. And we were, you know, we're citizen citizen journalists, basically. Right. We, and we're not really constrained by editors, okay? We that must be nice. Which was very pleasant. <laughs> and uh, So I did that. But then I would also go into the library. And when I came back, you know, to compose this book. I've been working on this book since about 2016. One of my sons, who's a, quite a techie, was able to go back on a high-speed computer up at Northern Michigan University and get every one of my submissions. 
which was really helpful. So it was a diary in place. And basically I filled out that diary. But I'll never, ever, ever challenge again having a really good editor because Arthur Pettis, who became my editor, I met him on the island. He was a Waldorf instructor in New Hampshire. I, I showed him the script a year ago in December and he wrote back in 10 days and said, this is a very lovely book. Well, the joy of working with an editor like that, yeah. who could actually imitate my style, and you know, and he helped me. I mean, there were some tricky things in this book, certain things that we couldn't say, you know, certain things that you know, we had to be discreet about. He worked all the way around that you know, and helped me uh, tremendously. Arthur Pittis. And speaking of um, language, uh, there is a lot of, of Ojibwe words in here. I'm not sure. Do you have a, a, a glossary or not? You, 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 I think that you pretty much define them or explain them as they appear in italics in the book. Yeah. But that must, and you, there also are, are maps in the back that, that give the reader, a, which I always love books that have maps in them. So I can locate myself not only through the text, but through a picture of where, where the action that I'm reading about is taking place. But it, in, um, in including the, uh, the Ojibwe words, when you're, you're describing some of the, the legends and, um, and, and I guess just the, the Ojibwe concepts that relate to the way the, the tribal people there relate to the land. Did you get help with those, or is this something that you've just picked up because you have spent so much time interacting with tribal members up in, in northern Wisconsin? Well, I've gone to a lot of ceremonies over the years, um, and the language uh, I've paid attention to, it's a complex language, but here's a good example. Uh, in Indian country, you and I would be referred to as Akiwenzi, old men of the earth. And our companions would be Mindamuye, which means she who keeps it together. You know, uh, there's so much in language that is really, really, it really resonates with me. And, you know, uh, I take a word like Wiesenin, uh, come and get it. It's time to eat, you know? All that stuff is close to my heart, you know? And those languages, you know, one of the advice, advices we got was from Robert Van Zyl, who is a medicine man at Mole Lake. He told us to do, to do this up in the hill. Learn language, study the culture, uh, feast, uh, make maple sugar, and give it away. And that's basically our strategy. We had a, we had a, a, a very uh, fine sugar camp there. We laid claim to trees at uh, Whitecap Lodge, which every county in the ceded territory is required to make maple trees available to Ojibwe harvesters. Oh, really? Is yeah. this a... That, that's a county rule? Or yeah, is it it's a federal rule, but counties f- must abide by it. I see. So uh, Larry, Larry was enrolled at, at uh, Mole Lake, so we went and we asked for 100 trees, and they were reluctant, but we tapped those trees. We tapped trees on Steve Feeney's land, the 
Truax uh, F-16 mechanic. We tra- we trapped on or tapped on rusty bucks, um, and we made about 15 gallons of, of maple sugar and maple syrup. But you had a nice comment about the maps. The maps were were uh, designed by Carl Sack, who teaches at uh, Fond du Lac Community College, and we kind of go by an old saying from Zoltan Grossman, who was a map maker here in the 80s and 90s, the side with the best maps wins. <laughs> so I love it that you saw the maps, you know, because there's some, you can go back to the artesian well, where magical things happen. Magical things happen at wells, and that was one of those places. And, People, and it, you know, uh, who had been opponents fell in love at those places. And the land has a big, you know, contribution to that. Yeah, when you talk about the the artesian well you're referring to is uh, the one that's uh, on the shores of Lake Superior in Ashland? Is that the one? No, or is this one is near Upson Lake, which is just up Highway 77 north of Upson Lake. So it, that was nearby where the yeah. camp was and where the mine... Yeah, GTAC uh, Mine Pit, south of 77, Moore Park Road area... Upson Town Park, Artesian Well. Okay. Uh, oh, yes, now I see it, yeah. Wren Falls is another place on the Tyler Forks which feels like it's on the set of Lord of the Rings. Really? You know, these are places where the water runs north. I mean, there's aspects of Alpine, and, you know, geologically, this was a, a mountain range as high as the Alps, you know, a billion some years ago. You can see it when you go to some of these promontories that this is high country. This was mountain country. Corrigan's look a white-capped sugar bush. Um, Yeah, uh, Spirit Rock. Um, Spirit Rock, some elders came from Canada, and they had a ceremony uh, to contact uh, the little people, the Mamagwashawak, which, you know, the Irish people are very familiar with. And so are tribal people. Maybe tribal people all over the world have access to little people. These are like fairies or elves? Elves, kind of, fairies. Yeah. And they, they like silver, so we would leave them dimes. And we'd leave them Reese's peanut butter pieces. <laughs> <laughs> but they live near the gash in the earth. and you gotta, Which is the, is the river? Which is, if you walk to Tyler Forks, you will see that it's a gash in the earth. It's an old, old, old country, uh, and there's brook trout there. And the turtles, the, the North American water turtles, come up to visit you. And you leave, uh, we would leave spirit plates for the little people. We would, we would feast them because we wanted them to be on our side. And as you said, uh, your side won this battle that uh, went on during that winter. And uh, perhaps it's partly because that you were the side with the best maps. I don't know, but I wanted to read one one section here near the end of the book about the that's called Victory Near and then Victory. So this began in 2013, Nick. This Nick, the the story that you're telling here. Yeah. So you, you write in January of 2015, iron ore prices on the spot market plummeted from a high of $187 a ton in 2011 to $68 a ton, effectively killing the mine. Mm-hmm. So that's, and it would basically cut in half the price, right? Right, right. And GTAC and Klein's Mining Company 
continued building the road up to the mine site, even though the market price, as you describe here, would have uh, killed the mine. And you say, one day we heard a bulldozer operating down the road. Rusty and I got on the four-wheeler and approached the driver. We signaled the driver to stop and made him get down from the machine. Rusty informed him about his Finlander relatives living in this territory from 1856 on. We then walked down the access road to another machine, an engineer. Rusty told them to stop their destruction, too. And when we returned to Rusty's cabin, Sheriff Furick and another officer were waiting for us. Rusty challenged them, too. Arrest me now so we can go to court. The Iron County sheriffs got in their squad car and left, right. and they did not arrest right. him. I don't think Iron County really wanted to take this to federal court. See, this territory we're in is under the auspices of the 1842 Copper Treaty signed at La Pointe. With the tribes. With the tribes, which guarantees the rights of usual occupancy to tribal people, enrolled tribal people. You know, one of the things I, I've learned um, from doing this treaty work over the years is no matter how eloquently, how beautifully, how articulately you document treaties, they are basically rejected. The general feeling is, well, that belongs to another era. That doesn't belong to us. And then I tell people this, and I'd like to read a little section Please. here. From the mid to late 19th century, 170 billion board feet of timber came over to the United States from treaty lands, as did 150 billion tons of iron ore mined from the Mesabi Range in Minnesota. On the Keweenaw, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, some of the world's finest copper ore deposits were mined and sent east, where they made the telephone and electrical systems possible. Extensive water resources went into the federal domain, Rivers powered paper mills and provided sites for recreational craft. And the shoreline of the Great Lakes provided ports for exporting every type of animal, plant, and mineral resources to the growing cities in the east. Fraudulent homesteading schemes or legally fake preemptions opened up previously protected tribal lands, enabling capitalistic cabals to acquire mineral deposits. Wanton exploitation of fish, fowl, and game by the Euro-Americans perpetrated crimes on a scale that beggars description, where flocks of ancient passenger pigeons had once numbered and the billions of birds were slaughtered to extinction over 40 years for sport use or as hog feed. It is told that sturgeon, one of the finest fish for eating, so tangled commercial nets that they were stacked up like cordwood burnt on the beaches, nearly wiping out a major renewable food source. Within two generations, the rivers were choked with sawdust from the mills, forest fires caused by de debris. I could go on and on. But what happened in the 80s is that the sons and daughters of these settlers uh, felt they had a right to protest and curse and shoot at the descendants of those who had ceded the land these protesters completely ignored the fact that the federal government had legally agreed to and subsequently affirmed the treaty rights of the Anishinaabe to hunt, fish, and gather wild rice in the ceded territory. It embitters me to this day. You know, I'm still something of a pry in Eagle River. Where you were a fishing where guy. Where I was a fishing guy because of this. It's never really been forgiven. 
the fact that Judge Crabb went in, you know, and decided against the the neo-fascist protests at the landing uh, kept the protesters from killing us. It was federal law that saved us. And this book plays a role in this continuing battle. We're, we're talking about a book uh, called Water Protectors, The Help Campaign to Save the Pinocchies, the story you've been listening to that Nick Vanderpie, the author, has been telling, uh, telling us right now and tells in the book in a, a really engaging way that that story, that history that goes back into the eight, 1980s that you were talking about, that um, all the different battles that have gone on, including those against the, the copper mining near Mole Lake, the Crandon Mine, the, the concentrated animal feeding operation in southern Bayfield County, and another water mining operation near Herbster. Now, you don't talk about that in this book, but now that I come across it, maybe it's a a time to just refer to what you, what you are referring to there. Uh, what, what, how a you... group of people up around Herbster have some springs on their land, and they proposed uh, shipping that water outside the, what's the water agreement? The Great Lakes Compact. Shipping that outside the Great Lakes Compact where they could bottle it in Superior and then sell it back to us at, you know, Exorbitant prices. Yeah. That one is being held up in court right now. Okay, so that's an ongoing... Yeah, and that one, it looks like we're winning on that one. We, um, and, and our allies up there, put together a a, a series of, of uh, yard signs saying not for sale, which uh, 1,700 of those signs have been distributed. And that has had some bearing on the local judiciary... And the, and the county boards. But the water, you know, l- let's just talk a little bit about the water. Lake Superior, I think, is about one quarter of the fresh water in North America. And it's, it's threatened. There's, we're seeing algae. You know, I live near water where I can drink it. All year and, round. And I don't have to worry about my dog passing out when he goes swimming. And so those are some of the tensions that we see up here, okay? And up north, you go north of Wausau, and the water is still pretty fresh. We want it to remain that way. Right. And it seems like the, the story you're telling in this book is, a, is about, in, in terms of being able to keep it that way, it seems like it needs to be fought for. The... the um, the laws are, are on the books, and, and, and actually in this book you do have a, a, a reference to a, an important piece of legislation in Wisconsin, and that is the um, uh, Assembly Bill 426 uh, that was introduced to the Wisconsin legislature in March, legislature in March of 2012. Uh, this was a piece of legislation that failed, but would have changed things in the upper Great Lakes, right? Assembly Bill 426, if it had become state law, an occurrence that protected the environment and peoples of Wisconsin and the upper Green Lakes from catastrophic consequences. Because the bill, what would have happened if if it had passed? Well, it would have been a lot easier to extract water without paying attention to water quality standards. One of the things that helps us outside of state involvement is that Bad River has treatment to state water quality standards. They are considered a sovereign entity. And that treatment to state 
sovereignty was leveraged at Mole Lake during the Crandon fight. That's right, during the fight against right. the Crandon mine. And that allowed the Mole Lake people to establish a higher water quality standard, which was which re- reflected sp- the spiritual connection we have with water. Well, that is not a numeric consideration. So it would be hard for a Western-based scientist to say that they had not violated water quality standards because they're dealing with zeros and ones, and we're dealing with the sanctity of the water, which in Medewan practice, the women care for. They carry the water in copper vessels, which, uh, and the men are responsible for the fire. Uh, I don't know anything equivalent to that in white society, but it is an Indian country and it's obvious, you see it. So those are the things that now uh, we fall back on. We're, We're involved in a great fight right now with Enbridge. The question is, uh, are these, you know, carbon-based companies going to be, uh, you know, given kid treatment status when they're becoming uh, no longer viable as, as investments? And this book is a good place to really get a sense of, uh, of how that battle is joined now, and, and as you're saying, yeah. is continuing. In this, in this, this book is about... A, perhaps just a small victory in that ongoing and that ongoing effort today we've been in conversation with nick vanderpie about his 2022 book water protectors the help campaign to save the pinocchis nick it's been a pleasure having you on madison bookbeat Jimmy miigwech you can meet nick vanderpie tomorrow afternoon march 21st at 5 p.m at kismet books that's 101 north main street in verona where he will be giving a reading, answering questions, and signing and selling his book. That's Tuesday, March 21st at 101 North Main Street in Verona.